0: DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector.
1: All right, here's what's going to happen now.
0: Hello and welcome to our podcast.
1: We are DSC. Your turn. You're the boss. Disability Disability Done done Different different Candid Conversations. Hope you're ready because we're starting.
0: Welcome to Disability Done Different Candid Conversations. Welcome, Evie. Hi. Hi. And who's in the studio today?
1: We have DSC subject matter specialist, Todd Winther. Welcome.
0: And not only is he a subject matter specialist in home and living, Todd's quite an expert in politics, political redistributions, and has worked in a bunch of different organizations in the sector and done some lecturing at university.
1: And we probably won't have time to talk about it today, but he's also my go-to source for romance novel recommendations. Oh, really? <laughs>
2: yes.
1: And
0: musicals. I'm sure he'll bring up something about musicals in the podcast.
2: Welcome, Todd. Thanks, guys. Good to be with you.
0: Hey, Todd, it's it's a real pleasure to have you here. You're a subject matter specialist at DSC, but you've also got so many other um, tools in the toolkit and experiences to bring to a really interesting conversation. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is your political interests. So you're so interested in politics, you've taught it at university, but you're also interested in the detail of political redistributions. You're interested in power and you've got a personal ambition around power and disability, can you tell us about that?
2: So, the personal ambition is all about connecting people with disabilities to understand the bureaucratic structure of how top-line political decisions are made, because particularly in the uh, NDIS uh, sphere or climate, we've had a culture of the, the bureaucratic system making decisions and people with disabilities not understanding how these decisions are made. And then the reverse, we've had people with disabilities providing feedback, but we haven't had the bureaucratic structure necessarily translating that feedback into effective action. So what I've always tried to do is kind of bridge the gap or have a foot in both camps so that People with disabilities can articulate their wants, needs, desires, and goals to the bureaucratic structure, and so the bureaucratic structure can make good public policy that is reflective of what we need as a as a group of individuals.
0: And how does that marry with your interest in you know everyday politics, like political redistributions in electorates? How are they? How do they couple up?
2: So. Politics is the study of power. Who's got it? What do they want to do with it? How are they going to use it? What's the ultimate goal of having the power? So if we take it back to the electoral redistributions, you've got Scott Morrison, the former Prime Minister, whose federal seat of Cook is in Cronulla in Sydney. Now, I've never been to Cronulla, but by studying his electorate, you get a sense of what are his values, what are the electorate's values. His whole political persona is centered around being an average boy at Cronulla, going to the rugby league, representing the average uh, person who lives in that electorate. So you can understand the demographics of the electorate, where it is location-wise, what's important to them as a group of people, you get a real sense of these are the people that vote for Scott Morrison or any other politician. So to understand how federal politics work, you need to understand how all the electorates across the country work as well.
1: So, Todd, you've obviously got a very keen interest in politics in NDIS, um, an interest that's very personal. But let's talk a bit about your journey to here. Can you tell our listeners a bit about your background?
2: Uh, Well, when I was eight months old, I got diagnosed with cerebral palsy, spastic quadriplegia. My parents were in their early 20s, and they had no exposure to cerebral palsy. They hadn't heard the term before, and the way that the pediatrician described it to them was that I'd be intellectually disabled. I would be a vegetable. I better be placed in an institution. My parents got told to forget about me and try for another baby. And I'm only sitting with you here because my parents didn't take that, adv- that advice. Mm-hmm.
0: You actually went to a special school, didn't you, Todd?
2: Yeah, because I was diagnosed with an intellectual disability and I wasn't progressing at the rate of an average person my age. Like, for example, I couldn't talk till I was four and a half and wasn't toilet trained until well into primary school. I started at a, spe- a special school and I was given specialised learning. So by the time I was eight or nine, I was then able to go to a mainstream uh, public primary school full time.
0: So you're quite positive about that special school experience, aren't you?
2: Yeah, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that specialised education because it wasn't only about teaching me how to talk or improving my mobility. It was about connecting with the world around, around me. That special school taught me how to drive my wheelchair, for example, and... Um, I still use skills that they taught me every day of my life, even without realizing it. And for example, where we're in a traditional uh, primary school setting, uh, people would teach other children how to handwrite at the special school. They acknowledged that I didn't have the mobility in my hands to do that. So they taught me how to improve my memory instead. And that's, held me in good stead, and again, these are techniques that I still use today, more than 30 years later.
0: Were there points where you were sort of stuck with, and we can edit this out if you don't want to answer it, Todd, but you're becoming aware, you've got a great intellect, and yet it's not being recognised. People are treating you as though you're, you've got an intellectual disability, and the stress that must have caused you, you know, when you have that awareness... Am I making I, this up?
2: No, I can see where you're coming from. I guess the, my own awareness of myself didn't come to light, you know, until I really hit my straps. Got to bear in mind, too, that I wasn't the only one that was intellectually capable in that special school. And when I transferred into that mainstream setting, I transferred with nine other kids who were from that special school who I grew up with, obviously, not all of them went to university and did full-time jobs, but they're all capable in their own ways. And we were taught how to interact with each other, but also in the wider world. I guess I look back on my time at the special school as a real grounding of this is who I am as a person with a disability. I mean, I still have friends from that, from that era from that special school who might not be as intellectually capable as I am, but we still talk about football and we still talk about, you know, how we're doing. And, you know, all our parents are bonded, for example. So, so we still have that connections as people with disabilities who shared this
0: common experience. Sort of leads me down another track. Yesterday I found myself um, wandering around Kew Cottages. I had an hour to kill nearby and also Willsmere, the old psychiatric institutions. And both institutions have got little historical plaques up that explain it, their history. And I actually used to teach a, a subject called the history of disability. And Kew Cottages was only ever set up for 60 kids. And when it was set up, it was seen as a groundbreaking, wonderful place for kids with disabilities, and we now look back on it with a huge amount of pejorative and a huge amount of negativity, and those people must have been really bad, but they weren't bad. They were some of the leaders of the time in trying to do disability different. I want to bring that forward, Todd, and say, when we look back in the future to the period we're sitting in now, what what are going to be the follies of the present that we'll look back and say, Jesus, they got it wrong? And not the easy stuff. Let's not pick the easy stuff of group homes. What, what, what do we, you reckon, we'll look back? It's a tough question, and say so we got it
2: wrong. I'm gonna put my political hat back on here, and I would actually say that public policy is the final frontier of disability inclusion. I believe that part of the reason why the NDIS isn't working as effectively as it could is that we're segregating the NDIS from the rest of the government and the public policy challenges that confront us as a nation. Now that may seem in a high concept and listeners out there might be going, oh, what does Todd mean when he says this? Well, let's strip it back and think about the role that Bill Shorten does at the moment Think about his title. It's not the Minister for Disability Services. It's the Minister for the NDIS. It's not about making sure that each housing place is affordable for everyone who has disability. It's not about making sure that people comply with the Disability Discrimination Act. It's about actually running the NDIS confronting those issues, yes, it's a big challenge, but the NDIS needs to be integrated into disability in general, but also a whole of government thing where the average voter who hasn't had interactions with people with disabilities can't say, well, job is done. The government has interacted or established the NDIS. I don't need to worry about that anymore. People with disabilities are taken care of. I really think we need to integrate policy and the challenges that we face as people with disabilities into the wider Australian community. I think the NDIS has done the opposite of that. And that really concerns me.
1: You're spot on, Todd. And actually, I want to throw that question back to you, Roland. What are the the follies of the present?
0: I, I got that question. I thought it was such a great question to ask Todd. I haven't got an answer, but I couldn't answer it better than Todd just did. Mm. I mean, if you, you're going to look back in 20 years, you're going to say they stuffed it when they just focused on the narrow NDIS and didn't look at the broader society. I think that's spot on. Mm. It really leads me to the next question I wanted to ask you, Todd. It's that ability to project forward and look back, and about a year into COVID, I heard a, a commentary saying, COVID is going to change our society, but we, we, we don't know how, and I'm pretty sure we still don't know how COVID has changed our society, and that in, again, in 20, 30 years, we'll look back and say, shit happened, you know, a whole lot of shit happened, but I know you've got some perspectives on how it's changing your life as a person with a disability, and whether that's more generalizable, can you talk to us about COVID from the future, please?
2: Sure, it's really a good news, bad news situation for people with disabilities and society at large. I would say the negative or the bad news is for the rest of the community, Um, welcome to the life of being disabled. We talk about choice and control in terms of the NDIS, but what uh, the pandemic or COVID in particular has taught the rest of society is about how choice and control really impacts their lives. You're scared you might get sick, so you're you're locked down in the house. You can't go out you can't control what the rest of society is doing. You might go to the shops and you might get infected. You can't control whether that happens. Those are daily challenges that people with disabilities face that, people without disabilities or people who don't work in the sector realise, you know, I might go to the shops and might run over a drawing pin and get a flat tire and you go, well, that's something beyond my control, but I have to think, what's gonna happen to me if I get a flat tire? What's my backup plan? The The world is not built for people with disabilities. And I think that COVID has taught the rest of the community that when we're in the middle of a pandemic, the world is not built for them. I I hope it has taught uh, people more empathy and more understanding. On the positive side for people with disabilities, it's really democratized access to information. We can talk about the, the practical sense about, you know, accessing information about um, the NDIS as a person with a disability. But I really want to talk about the fun stuff. I mean, I love Broadway shows and theatre. When uh, Stephen Sondheim turned 90, 18 months ago, Guy was able to watch a whole, uh, an old all star show on iTunes coming in from New York with all these cast members who were locked in their house during the pandemic. If I was not forced to isolate during COVID, there's no way I would have been able to go to New York or even to Sydney or to Melbourne to experience these wonderful opportunities. So I think it has allowed people with disabilities to be. Feel more included. The information has come to us, the entertainment has come to us. I really hope that that trend continues, not just with the important things, but also we've got to have an outer life, we've, we've got to enjoy things, we've got to take into account access to these things. And I think COVID has really allowed people to experience things that they've never experienced before. And I think that part of the pandemic has been wonderful.
0: One of the discussions you and I had um, yesterday, Todd, was we were digging into some data at DSC and looking at who's coming to conferences and who's repeat customers. And there was data in there that made no sense to me at all. I just was really struggling to make sense of it. And the discussion we had as a team on Slack was really, really interesting. And people were saying, Do you realise we're actually better connected than we were pre-COVID? We know each other and we connect more easily through Zoom at a moment's notice for a 10-minute meeting where previously it was harder to get together. We have more information. DSC, you're giving us three sets of information a week about stuff we need to know, and we get it from all over the place. There's conferences and workshops and events um, popping up all the time. And the conclusion was that post-pandemic, and we're not post-pandemic, in the middle of a pandemic, we're better connected and better informed than we ever were before. It's like, what?
2: I wouldn't have been able to work for DSC without the pandemic. With the pandemic, working for DSC, doing it all online and all via Zoom, has been the first opportunity that I've been allowed to work full-time because I don't have to worry about my personal care issues I don't have to worry about transport. If it's a rainy day and my wheelchair gets wet, I can just sit in my office, do the work. You know, I take 10 minutes off to do my personal care, organize my support workers around my work schedule. That wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the pandemic.
1: Let's talk about some of that work you do with DSE, Todd, because um, so as a subject matter specialist, you have a specialization in home and living. And obviously in politics, that's not a DSC one, but you seem to manage to make it one for DSC pretty regularly. Uh, but one of the things you bring into your work, as people have probably picked up by now, is is talking about your lived experience. And it's something that you do very, very well. We can see, like anytime you know, you're presenting at WTFH, our conference or in workshops, the chat just comes alive. People really connect with you and you talk about They love that. it, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, Todd, if it's not too awkward to ask you to reflect on yourself, but what do you think it is about the way that you share that makes people connect with
2: you like that? Well, one of my strengths, I would say, is I'm very good at taking big picture concepts and explaining them to people on an elemental level. And we all know as people that work with the NDIS every day, it's a complex complicated beast, has many sort of contours, lots of information, you're at the point with the NDIS where you can't know it all. But if you can take those big picture concepts, and distill it down and say, this is what an operational guideline means to you, as a person with a disability or as a support coordinator, or as a team leader. That's Why we're here at DSC, because we take the time to read the difficult stuff and distill it down for you and to say, this is what it means, this is why it's important, and this is how we should carry on into the future.
1: But you do more than Todd than that, Todd, because that's that's something that that I can do perfectly well is translate the price guide. Here's what that bureaucratic garbage means in plainer language. But what I think you you have a real gift to do is the and this is why it matters. I think you do an awesome job of translating, you know, this policy or this piece of you know, bureaucratic information into the, the impact in people's lives and, and you use your own story, I think, particularly well to do that. And so I have a follow-up question for you, which actually comes from Sarah Gingold, our editor. I, I asked her before I came, what's something that you want to know about, Todd? And she wants to know, how does it feel for you to talk about your disability like that?
2: It sounds like a really basic question, but it's a really complicated answer because Yes, I I I operate in the disability sector my whole life. I do it for a job. I love doing it for a job because if I can explain something and it helps another person with a disability, that's great. But I also hate my disability. It's the worst quality I believe I have about myself. So I I have this really contradictory nature towards my disability and how I interact with it. It, quite frankly, it is, why have therapy every two weeks? Because it's a really complicated answer and I think in order to unpack it, it's going to take me 40 more years. You're really getting to the crux of the difficult questions that I have as an individual. Yes, I can like the fact that my disability can allow me to be a powerful advocate, and to communicate with others, and to talk to people about issues that really matter. But I hate the fact that I can't get out of bed in the morning, that I can't, you know, go to the toilet when I want to. But These are the stories that I share because it's really important to have a multi-dimensional picture of a, a person with a disability. There's often this dichotomy or this extreme where you either really love your disability, oh, I'm this powerful disability advocate, disability pride, yahoo sort of thing, or disability is a tragedy and It's awful and I don't want to have a disability, but it's really a contoured, multi-dimensional thing that's really complicated to explain. And even if somebody had the identical disability to me that was affected in the same way, the way that they would respond to their disability could be entirely different. Part of it is biological and physical, But I think it's also environmental, too, because one of the great things that my parents taught me, and I know that they'll be listening to this, but they taught me how to stand up for myself, but also how to articulate things in a really honest, really direct, really powerful way, because it's what they do as individuals.
0: You spoke for a moment there about disability pride, Todd, and and what you said um, gets you on the wrong side of a lot of the disability pride movement, I would have thought. Mm. And a lot of what you said was about nuance. And I'm going to speak personally, I'm not going to speak for anybody else, but it seems so often in the disability sector, we can't do nuance. You're black, you're white, you're for, you're against. You're positive about disability pride or you're not. And what, what you're arguing for is nuance, but that costs you, doesn't
2: it? yeah because uh, there's a reason for those extremes Roland and we we have to every day we have to front up to the agency and say for example that it's reasonable and necessary to get out of bed in the morning. Um, you and Evie don't have to do that and while, while you guys have got your own challenges I'm sure I, I, Default mode is to fight. Everything is a battle. Everything is a challenge. Every every battle we win, we fight aggressively. So even if we disagree, there's always going to be these extremes to say you're either with us or you're against us. There's no in between because when you have a disability, there's no in between. Either you're disabled or you're not you're discriminated against or you're not, you're bullied or you're not. And I think the, not, the nuance is really difficult to get out because disability leaves no room for nuance. I've had to teach myself nuance and how we talk about extremes in disability advocacy. I'll put my hand up and say, I had a really good opportunity a decade ago at ramp up and I wasted it because I was too aggressive, too extreme, and I alienated a lot of people when I shouldn't have. And from from that experience, I've taken away the lessons of nuance where there is more than one way to say something and it's not being for or against something. There are good points, there are bad points, and there's lots of grey right in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So, Todd, you've learned to pull yourself back as, as you've grown older from the FU response, from the, uh, the, the response you really want to give to be more nuanced or you've become more nuanced?
2: <laughs> well, Asking for a friend. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> my my whole my whole life has been a, a, an aggressive response, and I'll just say to that pediatrician that I mentioned earlier, what I've discovered in therapy was that um, my whole life has been about proving that pediatrician wrong. Bugger you! You said I was intellectually disabled. Bugger you! You said that I wouldn't be able to contribute to society, bugger you. You said that I belonged in an institution, I will show you. And because I spent so much time saying bugger you to to the pediatrician, I wasn't able to develop uh, a life around me, I wasn't able to be happy. I spent too much time saying, bugger you, you're wrong. I'm going to prove you wrong, and here's how I'm going to do it. That, that came at the expense of developing friends, developing relationships, developing a life outside my disability. And as I say, that's that's why I go to therapy every two weeks, because most of the time I go to my counsellor every two weeks, and I go, oh, my life is really really bad and even though he's not disabled he goes it's okay i'm here to listen you're in a safe space to unload and that's what i do and then i use those sessions and then i move on and then search for the nuance i guess
1: oh wow I'm, I'm so glad you can speak so openly about all this stuff, Todd, because it's such a gift that you give people when you're willing to be it's so yeah, so honest about your own experience like that. I think it's a real testament to the importance of having people with disability, people with these lived experiences at the center of everything that we're doing and not, God, I can't believe I just said it that way. It felt coming out of my mouth. It's not what I meant. I wanted something bigger than that about like what you would say is giving the power to people that it belongs to. And and on that track, I want to ask you, Todd, about one of your more, I mean, potentially controversial opinions, which is that the CEO of the NDIA doesn't need to be a person with a disability. Take us there.
2: Well, I'll qualify that answer and say the CEO of the NDIA doesn't need to be uh, a person with a disability because I believe that the, the chairperson of the NDIA needs to be a person with a disability because they handle the strategic direction of where mm. the scheme wants to go. The CEO, it, don't get me wrong, it would be great if that person was uh, disabled, but the CEO's job is to carry out the wishes of the board as headed by the chairperson. I think it's more important that the chairperson of the board be a person with a disability because they set the direction of where we're going to head, not in just, you know, the next six months to a year, but five years, 10 years, 20 years into the
0: future. So Todd, let's wind this up. You've floored Evie and I a number of times with your responses today and we're not easily forward. And I suspect it's because you're bringing the conversation back to a place that um, we probably struggle to belong. So it's really interesting to, to have the conversation with you. I want to take it somewhere else and ask you who your political hero is because I, <laughs> I, I know.
2: Uh, I'm probably going to cheer up. Um, my political hero is um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And for those people who aren't history lovers, he was the longest serving American president between 1933 and 1945. That sort of bookends between the start of the Great Depression and, and the end of World War II And he's responsible for getting the United States out of both crises. But the reason why he's a hero to me is because he did it all while sitting in a wheelchair. He contracted polio 11 years before he became president of the United States. And he had two goals in life. He said, one day I am going to walk and I'm going to be President of the United States. Franklin Roosevelt achieved being the greatest American president of the 20th century, but he did not achieve his goal of walking. He did it all by sitting in a wheelchair. He was tremendously ashamed about being disabled, much like myself, but his leadership, his power, his gravitas, his knowledge, all came by being disabled, again, like myself. And what his experience literally taught me was, yes, you can achieve great things, yes, you can be disabled, but it's okay not to be proud of your disability, to say to the press, for example, Under no circumstances are you allowed to take a photo of me in my wheelchair, and they never did. People respected him for his ability, not because of his disability, and that's what I want to be remembered for.
0: I think there's an extremely good chance of that, Todd. I'm just watching your career of the last few years and, and... It feels like the times are right. Times are right for Todd Winther and the maturing Todd Winther to really have the impact that you want to have. So my guess is you're going to get there. I hope. That's, so. I reckon you will. But that's it for Disability Done Different. A great episode, Evie.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Todd. Thank you. Thank
2: you.
0: Wow, Evie, that was not what I expected. We work with Todd. We know him really well. We we speak to him a lot. Yet I was thrown a lot. There's a lot of times where I didn't have a smart next question to ask because he'd taken us to such depth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so cool. Cool's not the word. It's a lot more than that. But it's so cool to have somebody who's so willing to share what they've learned about themselves in that way and about the things that are hard and not pretty and... And so
0: often in disability, we're working with scripts. You can feel that, you know, there's a script that people are going to take you on. It's interesting and it's whatever, but Todd was not working to a script.
1: Absolutely not.
0: It was totally authentic.
1: Yeah. At the risk of sounding like a cliche, like I I feel like that was a real privilege to have that conversation with him.
0: It was. But now do the outro.
1: You've (laughs) You've been listening to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations, a podcast by DSC that's produced by Maya Thomas. You can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts or at teamdsc.com.au slash podcasts. And we also like five-star reviews, even though none of you ever give us any. (laughs) You don't give us any. It's not like we're getting other reviews. But anyway, if you want to, you could. It's my birthday next week. All right. (laughs) Bye. Bye.